you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management in studio today to guide us through all that's happening on global markets. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Philip Wars from PSG Asset Management to discuss their global flexible fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Walmart shares have come under pressure after the world's largest retailer posted a sharp decline in interim profits and online sales growth during the holiday season. The retailer foresees even lower annual profit, which has forced several brokerages to cut their price targets. Angry Birds game maker Rovio Entertainment has warned on its profit growth, wiping out 45% of the Finnish company's shares. That took it to less than half its IPO price of 11.5 euros. The company scaled down its expected sales to between 260 and 300 million euros, less than last year's 297 million and well below analyst forecasts. And Barclays has reported a below-forecast 10% rise in its annual profit, largely due to hefty charges related to Donald Trump's corporate tax changes. The company, however, has promised to return more cash to shareholders over time by doubling its dividends as of next year. Here's that report. Barclays was the top index riser on the UK's FTSE on its results. The bank to double its promised dividends next year, pledging to return more cash to shareholders over time. But if investors liked that, some things they perhaps didn't like, such as a 22% slide in profits in its international division on falling investment incomes and rising impairments. It accounts for the majority of Barclays PLC's uh, income and obviously they've started to move and shift their business model to slightly more riskier plays. But if Barclays Investment, Barclays International uh, isn't performing, then the whole company doesn't. An overall £3.5 billion pre-tax profit for 2017 turns into an attributable loss of nearly £2 billion, with US tax write-downs, losses on the sale of Barclays Africa and provisions for Forex manipulation. CEO Jess Staley still faces an inquiry for attempts to unmask a whistleblower. The bank faces charges of giving Qatari investors an illegal loan and is in discussions with US officials over toxic mortgage-backed securities. All banks within the UK banking sector and certainly within the developed world probably have a, uh, a way to go to repair the reputation. To be honest, the less and less we hear about banks, the better. But what investors say they do hear for now is a message of a turnaround gathering pace. 2018 seen as when it has to pay off. In the words of one analyst, the year that Barclays has to put up or shut up on its promises. Nick Norman-Smith, Chief Investment Officer at Lentus Asset Management, joins me now. Um, Nick, we'll get to Barclays in just a moment. How about the broader picture, though, because it looks like the market's been placated by noises coming out of the Fed, and we have Jerome Powell speaking again this week, and it looks like he might go a little bit easier on the interest rates than the market had expected. Yeah, perhaps, and everyone's, everyone's trying to kind of call the, call the top, and it certainly has been a, a very volatile start to, to the year. Mm -hmm. um, I think what it does show, though, is, is anyone who's, who's betting on trying to kind of catch the trend upwards, you can see how quickly things can turn around. We've seen, we've seen a rebound, so everything's kind of calm for the moment. But certainly, while we believe you should, you should let valuations drive your... your um, your positioning because the market can turn very quickly and to try and get out when everyone's heading for the door is a, is a very tough thing to do and uh, yeah but you know US 10 years close to 3% so still historically very low 
but uh, obviously there can be a lot of uh, eruptions that will be caused in the market if that continues to, to move upwards. People have got so used to these, these record low interest rates. I'm not sure anyone truly knows exactly what all the ramifications will be, but it's, it's unlikely to be pretty. Mm. Do you think it matters whether we have three rate hikes or four rate hikes this year? No, not really. And trying, trying to forecast this, we've we've seen that history uh, history's shown it, it's impossible to to forecast these short term movements. But take a step back and just look at look at where rates are and where they've been over time, and they're clearly very very low. So the risk the risks remain uh, to the upside, and we've seen that with the U.S. inflation starting to tick up a little bit. So I don't think the exact timing makes makes a difference, but. I think of anyone, anyone who's investing based on the belief that rates are going to stay low for the indefinite future, I think that's quite a risky position to be in. Because, okay. I mean, the belief is that equities actually like a rising inflation and rising interest rates environments, I suppose, to a point. Um, and, and that's good because it gives them some pricing power. They can increase their prices. I mean, looking at their earnings, and I think most of the companies have reported back now. We still have a few dribbling through. Are the earnings justifying the valuations? Yeah, well, firstly, we've got these wonderful tax charges, so they've kind of killed any easy assessment and, and of, of the earnings, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it, yeah, if you, if you look down on the underlying um, earnings, certainly the, the companies are looking strong. Uh, and that's not particularly surprising. We've got unemployment at record lows, we've got a bit of inflation ticking up. So I wouldn't say that the alarm bells are flashing, but the kind of earnings that are required by these valuation levels, they need to be strong. So the concern is, if they do dip just a little bit, those very highly valued stocks look at something like Rovio in, the, in that new segment earlier. You can really see a you know you can really see a big uh, a big downgrade in terms of their valuations, and that's you know, not not a position you really want to be in. So I wouldn't say that earnings are particularly weak, but uh, you know investing and and market movements are all about expectations, and I would say expectations, if you look at valuations are still pretty bullish. Mm. Well, Rovio, you mentioned, um, is one of those companies that came to market with great fanfare and everybody was excited. It makes Angry Birds, um, so all those movies. I think there's a sequel coming out next year, which Rovio is going to obviously hope is going to drive some more interest. Um, but do you think people jump into shares like these and IPOs like these for the wrong reasons? Yeah, if, if you look at history, uh, generally investing in IPOs over the short term I is a poor investment. And that makes logical sense because insiders are selling out. Insiders probably have uh, the best view of, of the value of a company, they're only going to be giving that stake up if they're really going to, to get a lot of money. And obviously, investment banks go out and sell these businesses. It's much easier to sell something that's popular and expensive. Um, so yeah, not, not particularly surprising that it's come under pressure. It's obviously quite a focused business line. Uh, obviously, they've got some spin-offs like the movies, but it's, it's one big game. They've maybe got a couple of other assets. Compare that to something like Tencent, which Granted, it's also very expensive. They make a lot of money from games, but they own the entire ecosystem. Um, therefore, it doesn't matter what one or two games do. They own the client, and they can continue to uh, you know, continue to monetize them. Whereas, I if you just own one or two big games, it's a hit today. I mean, we all saw what uh, you know what happened with Nintendo and and those games. So, uh, I think, like anything, a one-hit wonder business or a business that is very focused on one particular revenue stream is always going to be risky. Okay, um, So Barclays, one of the companies that's been affected by the tax changes, but they also had a very weak um, period for their international division, um, helped by the losses on the sale of Barclays Africa, <laughs> as well as a number of other things. They've had to make provisions for forex manipulation, they've had rising impairments, lower investment income, all from the international division. Um, 
And yet, uh, I think the shares are up after they reported because they have promised to increase their dividends. Yeah, and, and a lot of investors are looking for that. I mean, I think the, unfortunately, their capital allocation has been relatively poor. They bought Barclays, um, when, when Barclays Africa, ABSA, when, when things were looking really, really positive mm-hmm. um, and valuations were high. And they sold out um, when things were looking the darkest. And now the market's turning once again. So that's not the kind of capital allocation that gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling as an investor. Um, you want you know you want companies deploying your capital in a you know in a much more efficient manner. Do, do you like it now that it's more focused um, on the UK and the US? Yeah, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit cleaner, but I think there are better banks out there because globally a lot of financials have been quite cheap. Insurance companies, banks, with these low interest rates, it does tend to depress some of the earnings. Of course, there are. The low interest rates also help to stimulate economic growth, mm-hmm. which is generally good for banks. But but a rising interest rate environment should should help them uh, to a large extent. And I think the market's been betting on lower rates. So if we do see those go up, that could be quite positive for financials. How much of that is already priced in is is another question. Okay, and um, Walmart, the, those shares under pressure. It posted a. Uh, lower profits, online sales growth was also pretty poor over the holidays uh, and it looks like it has been losing more ground to Amazon and, and the online side. Yeah, fascinating case study looking at um, Warren Buffett's just come out with his letter so everyone's talking about competitive moats and, and all of that once again. Now if you look at um, uh, if you look at Walmart's competitive moat, it's their buying power which allows them to to have, you know, their scale allows them to have buying power which which um, means they can uh, pass that on to customers, have the cheapest price and that's a virtuous circle. And that got them uh, to be one of the more successful companies on the New York Stock Exchange for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Amazon is, this is now obviously what everyone's betting on for Amazon. The question is, could they convert their buying power from from offline to online? And the market started betting that they could. They bought, uh, they bought an e-commerce business. They tried to um, plug some, you know, plug some of the inventory in, and it looked like things were working. The online sales were growing, um, but all they'd done is they'd cut their prices in line with Amazon, and started getting a bit of uh, getting a bit of traction. As soon as they decided, no, we actually need to make money off this business, and they raised their prices, everyone went back to Amazon. So to try and compete against somebody who's willing to sell at basically no margin is very, very difficult. And as Amazon builds up that buying power, the big question is, is, is there any moat left for Walmart um, or not? So it's, it's a very tough question. Uh, and they announced last week that they were looking at buying 40% of India's Flipkart. So, so buying that online presence, is that a, a way to do it? Yeah, and they've, what they've also done is they've got a big stake in JD.com, which is effectively the Amazon of China. They've built out a massive uh, uh, logistics network and, and they sell goods into China. So what they've provided JD is the buying power and scale and JD have given them an entrance into China and a, a distribution network. So I think that is a potentially smart strategy. Uh, you know, who, who will be the ultimate winner? Will it be JD or, or Walmart? Um, if they build up that scale, time will tell. But I think, I think it makes sense. And, and perhaps people need to, uh, companies need to team up to take on the might of, of Amazon because they really are destroying all, <laughs> all in front of them. And I've heard they're opening up an office in South Africa soon, so yeah, taking on the local uh, retailers. Well, the, the one of the founders of uh, Amazon Web Services, which is a very profitable division of theirs, is a South African, and they do already run, if you go on li- online chat on, on Amazon, um, you often chat to someone in Cape Town already, so. Um, Watch the space. Yeah. Uh, maybe finally, in a, in a market as expensive like this uh, as it is, um, General Mills, uh, which makes Cheerios, 
very popular breakfast cereal in the US, and buying blue buffalo pet products for nearly $8 billion. That's an awful lot of dog food. <laughs> it is an uh, interesting space. So, so General Mills has been under some pressure, stagnating profits, profit selling sort of yogurt and, and, um, and those sort of products. I guess it, it's quite tough because you're getting a lot of in-store brands from, uh, you know, from some of the, the, the grocers, etc. Mm -hmm. so that's put you under pressure. So this is a, this is a growth area. Uh, people, you know, they call it the personification of, of animals and a lot of people are, are spending a lot of money on their pets so this is this is a real sweet spot because it's it's the pet space which is growing it's organic which is growing put them together but the valuation paid is huge so General Mills is trading at around two times revenues and that's generally what a lot of their competitors are trading at they bought this business at over six times um, so the margins are obviously higher which is why they want them but you're paying a lot of money so you're gonna have to extract some synergies or really, really drive growth in order to make that uh, successful. And if you look at what the market did, um, it sold down General Mills shares and obviously uh, bought the, the blue, blue shares up quite substantially. So time will tell whether they can do it. History's shown that generally these big acquisitions when um, companies are striving for growth, destroy shareholder value, unfortunately. Okay, um, I've been accused of spoiling my animals, so. Watch that space. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at the PSG Global Flexible Fund, and that's with Philip Wars. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Nick Norman-Smith from Lentis Asset Management. Joining us on the line to discuss the PSG Global Flexible Fund is Philip Wars from PSG Asset Management. Philip, thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining us this evening. So the PSG Global Flexible Fund, what are investors buying into? Well, look, the PSG Global Flexible Fund is a global fund, as, as the name implies. Um, and our main is to grow and preserve capital um, in the long run. Uh, what that means in practice, what we want to do is generate equity-like returns at low levels of risk. Uh, the mandate of the fund is U.S. inflation plus 6%, and that's what we try and do over, over the medium to long term. Um, I think it's important for your viewers to understand uh, at PSG Asset Management, we've been, we bought our first global share in 2006, and what the PSG Global Flexible Fund tries to do it's exactly the same that we've been doing for the PSG Flexible Fund, the South African Fund, for now over 14 years, um, and where we allocate capital in the, in the Global Flex Fund's case across the globe. Um, and we do this with our bottom-up process of stock selection, and really, you would have been familiar with, with, with our approach to having a high-conviction investment style. So an investor can really expect to see a portfolio that when we find a lot of opportunities in the market to be pretty much fully invested, and we, when we find fewer opportunities or opportunities are more expensive, that we're going to sit in cash and sit on the sidelines patiently and, and get ready when, when those opportunities come available. Mm. I mean, well, as you said, your mandate allows you to have 100% invested in equities. Last year you had around 70% in equities. This year even less. So at present, you're sitting on about 36% cash. Are you not finding any attractive investment opportunities out there for that money? Well, look, I think it needs to be said. I mean, two years ago, in the, in the, after the kind of commodity crisis, emerging market crisis, the fund actually had 92% of the, of the portfolio invested in equities. Um, and as markets have risen over the last years, and as our stocks that we, we, we used to find attractive have repriced, 
we have allocated out of equities um, into, into cash. So uh, by design, we, as you said, we've got 64% in equities at the end of uh, January. Uh, we still think those are attractive investment opportunities. Uh, but from a, from a broad message, markets uh, are giving us few opportunities in, in the past, which uh, leads us to be more cautious. Mm. I mean, Nick, would you prefer to be sitting on a bit of cash if you're not finding great places to deploy it rather than uh, spending too much? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, invest in the least expensive stock um, is, is not something we believe is a, is a smart thing to do. So sitting on that, on that cash balance. And if you're able to still generate strong performance with that, with that, um, you know, with that cash cushion, then then all the better. I mean, I think the fund did around 20% last year, despite having quite a large, uh, large cash balance. So that's uh, that's great. You know, the reality is, if there's obviously a big move towards passives, if you've got an active manager that you're paying um, higher than passive fees for, you want them to take concentrated positions and you want them to to stick their necks out. Um, otherwise, you might as well just own the market. So uh, it's all well and good having an active fund that that performed last year, but owned the rest of the market. I'd, I'd be much more comfortable in a fund that, that did well earning different stocks, or even if it did badly, um, at least it owns something different. Um, so I think that's, that's key. And um, Philip, if you, in terms of your, your cash holdings, I mean, where are you parking that? Um, I, I'm guessing based on the fact that you strong value investors, you're probably not seeing much value in the, in the bond market. Um, currency diversification, you know, where, where are you parking that capital? I think you answered that question well. So we haven't owned global bonds in the fund at all. Um, and once again, currencies are very difficult to predict and forecast, but we generally want to be diversified across geographies and currencies. So out of the 36% uh, in cash, we've currently got about 60% in, in US dollars, and the rest spread around uh, British pounds, euros, Norwegian kroner, um, and a Japanese yen. Um, but I also want to echo earlier what, what, what Nick said. I think it's important for any potential investor in the fund to understand that at PCA Asset Management, we are across all our fund range, we are benchmark agnostic, so we're not going to own anything just because it's in the index. And also, we're only going to allocate capital to opportunities that we think we're going to make money in absolute terms. Um, and uh, obviously, we're going to get stuff wrong, but that's where kind of requirement of a high marginal safety uh, hopefully protects us in case we, 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 get, we get things wrong. And it was pleasing last year uh, to, to generate the performance we did where we had an average cash holding of 30% uh, for the year and over the last two years uh, an average of about uh, 20%. Uh, Philip, uh, as Nick pointed out, you delivered close to 20% last year, so that was in line with what the S&P 500 did. Of course, the S&P 500 was driven by all of those FANG shares, so those fatty IT companies, uh, and yet you didn't have exposure to any of those. So it must be quite difficult to get those returns when you're not going with the momentum of the market. Yeah, look, I mean, one year, we would definitely want people to not look at one-year returns, but, it, but I would agree. I mean, we, we just found better opportunities elsewhere, and that's been an – I mean, you don't have to go far back and, and think of how unloved or hated the U.S. banking sector was, and all of a sudden, that's kind of in vogue again. So we, we were fortunate to have a large exposure in that part of the market, and we also found in, uh, great opportunities in some of the industrial shares, especially those that were a little bit tied to the commodity cycle, whether that's been some of the U.S. railroads or the U.S. industrial companies such as Colfax, and a lot of those companies did experience uh, a significant re-rating in the last uh, kind of 12 to 24 months. 
but yeah, we would have loved to own some of those Fang shares, but for for long period now they've just been too, too expensive for, for what we're willing to pay. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be invested there again. Uh, another example would be a company such as Microsoft, which almost qualifies as, as part of the FANGs these days. Um, we, we used to own a lot of Microsoft in the fund a num- number of years ago, but that kind of was during a time when everyone worried about the death of the PC and how Microsoft was going to be irrelevant. But, but those kind of times give you the opportunity to buy a company like that at under 10 times earnings. But now you kind of fast forward to today, everyone loves it, and you, you're kind of trading mid 25 times on a, on a P ratio. Are you seeing similar mispricing opportunities in the markets at the moment, Nick? Yeah, uh, we were. We also owned Microsoft back then and thought we were genius selling out, you know, buying it at $18, selling it at 50 and now it's at 100 But that's that's the nature of, of focusing on those valuations, I think. So it is becoming very tough to, to find opportunities out there. There are... There are pockets uh, pockets of value, absolutely, but I think uh, by the nature of things, um, the popular areas um, are popular for a reason, and it's often because the share prices have moved up and things are looking great. That's not a great uh, hunting ground for, for attractive uh, uh, bargains. So, you know, the, the whole tech sector has come, come under, or has, has really, really rallied strongly. There are still some, some good companies, but, but broadly speaking, a lot of those just look very expensive, whether it's the old school techs like the Microsofts or the Intels or the Cisco's, um, which were very um, attractive not a, a couple of years ago, uh, right up to the you know the Fangs and the and the more popular stocks now. So I think cash is, is certainly not a not a bad uh, place to be. Mm. Uh, Philip, you, you have twenty percent exposure to the United States, which I suppose is quite a lot less than many other global funds, which tend to be about fifty percent exposed to the U.S. and you have fifteen percent exposure to the U.K. Uh, which many might think is dicey given the, the, the risks that Brexit brings. But does that Brexit risk also bring mispricing opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, firstly, on the U.S., you're right. About two years ago, we had about 50% of the fund in the U.S. Um, and of the current 20%, in fact, only a quarter comes from companies that actually generate most of the earnings in the U.S. So effectively, we've got the fund, and I've got a 5% exposure to kind of US-type earnings compared to 50% two years ago. A country, we, we often find that the best ideas and, and best opportunities for longer-term returns, especially if you're willing to look through the short-term issues and noise, comes from areas where there's quite a bit of fear and uncertainty, and, and Brexit's definitely been an ideal kind of uh, scenario for, for that to occur. So we have definitely spotted more ideas in, in, in the UK where the people are just generally a bit more worried about the shorter term economic outlook and and that gets us quite excited. Are there, are there any other areas in the markets? I mean it's tough I think in the current environment but uh, are there any other particular areas that you're seeing uh, sort of bottom-up yeah, uh, opportunities? Definitely. So it, it would ob- it, in some areas such as the agricultural commodity space um, and there once again it, it kind of oversupplies specifically in the phosphates and, and potash markets led to well, low commodity prices, but ultimately the supply will work itself out over, over the medium to long term. And we found some great opportunities, um, actually the US listed company Mosaic um, and Co, which is the world's kind of largest phosphates and potash producer. Then also in, in areas where everyone would be familiar with last year's kind of death by Amazon kind of a narrative where that narrative led to kind of sell-offs in the U.S. and, and global retail space. So we're finding opportunities there. 
and then also uh, in, in some select areas in, in the media and advertising space where business model disruptions have kind of caused uh, fear and uncertainty, which once again is the environment for mispricing. Uh, I think it's very important to understand that Amazon and all these things are definitely having an impact on the sector, but when the market in many cases takes that narrative and extrapolates it for over the long term, you're able to, to find some good ideas uh, for, for, for kind of more contrarian longer term investors. And, and also I think last year, and, and it still applies now to some extent, actually South Africa has been a, a, one of those areas where the political noise and, and issues we've had here has, has caused uh, or resulted in valuations that have been under pressure. And that's been globally actually, uh, some colleagues have been on, on the road recently on the domestic funds. So South Africa has actually been one of the best, uh, one of the better environments for good opportunities um, kind of through 2017. Okay, and um, Philip, we have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks very much for chatting to us this evening. Okay, thanks very much. Right. Thanks to you too, Nick. Um, of course, 1.9% total investment charge seem worth it for the, for the fund, for what you're getting? Yeah, I, I think it's, some, it's something different. And uh, yes, costs and fees are obviously important and take it from whence it comes. We, you know, we, use, uh, we have uh, you know, active managers as well. But uh, I think if, you, if you're paying that and you can see a, a history of, of strong outperformance, you know, I think the, the real test will come through the next down cycle. And, and that, that's where the active managers really um, earn their stripes, so, so let's see. But I think looking at that fund, certainly compared to some of the other funds that we've analysed before over time, this is a true active manager that, that really is um, making concentrated bets you know, compared to the, the closet index trackers. So I think it's what it says on the tin, which is, which is a good start. Great. Okay. Uh, so we have to see you for this week. Thanks again to Nick Norman-Smith. from uh, He's the Chief Investment Officer at Lentis Asset Management. Also, Philip Wars, Fund Manager at PSG Asset Management, for his insights as well. Thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.